Hi, I'm your host, Mo Litsky, and the CEO of Prime Quadrant. You're about to hear a conversation from our Lunches with Legends series, where we connect with some of the most illustrious business and investment leaders around the world. To learn more, check out our website, lunchswithlegends.com. Now, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce our very special guest today, the extraordinary Eileen Murray. <laughs> Eileen Murray is the chair of the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, better known as FINRA, where she has served on the Board of Governors since 2016. Eileen is the former co-chief executive officer of Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund with $138 billion uh, of assets under management, and having taken uh, the chief executive reigns from Bridgewater's founder, Ray Dalio. And Eileen has received more awards than um, for her leadership and her philanthropic efforts than we have time to enumerate, but just a couple include the Lifetime Achievement Award from Markets Media, Hedge Fund Journal's 50 Leading Women in the Hedge Fund Industry, U.S. Bankers Most Powerful Women in Banking, Irish Magazine's 100 Best and Brightest uh, Leaders, and the list goes on and on. But to hear more from Eileen than about Eileen, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to welcome our distinguished guest and industry legend, Mrs. Eileen Murray. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mo. And uh, let me also join you in thanking the sponsors for this incredibly important cause. And thank you for doing this. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so let's dive right in. Um, you had uh, an interesting path to Wall Street. Maybe we could just start off by uh, you sharing a little bit about your journey and, and how you ended up at Morgan Stanley. Yeah, um, you know, um, I, I, I went to Morgan Stanley pretty early in my career. How I got there, I... Um, I grew up in um, in um, in a housing project in uh, the top of Manhattan, and I was fortunate that you know I, I basically grew up with people from all walks of life, uh, you know people from of, of, of all different colors, uh, you know gender and so on and so forth. And I went to a college, uh, Manhattan College, which is a college for children of immigrants, which has changed its face over time. And when I went there, I was encouraged to go into accounting by by people, whereas um, a number of other people were saying, geez, accounting's not really for, for women. So I actually went to, at the time, Pete Morick, one of your big sponsors, KPMG now, and I was in the, um, in the accounting group there. Uh, and when I left after four years, I was the most experienced person, this is almost laughable, in, in the securities industry uh, at, you know, at, at the non-partner level. And so I went over to Morgan Stanley uh, and um, it was, it was you know, before they were public. And uh, you know, quite candidly, the reason I went there was I could go and work for triple the, the money for uh, probably half the hours, which is not a good reason why I initially went there. But uh, ultimately, uh, having gone there, it, it was a fantastic experience. So, so that, you know, pretty much was my first uh, 26 years of my life. And so let me actually go back to the first part of those 26 years, because um, it sounds like you grew up um, in a fairly humble environment. Um, how, how, how was some of the, what was unique about your upbringing or perhaps your personal history, other than that it was a humble environment that, that sort of contributed to you becoming the person you are today? You know, I think I think there's something to be said that's pretty truthful about you learn everything you know in the first five or 10 years. I forget how many years they give you, but I was very fortunate to have two really great 
people for parents who, whom I loved, but I actually would like as people. Mm-hmm. And they gave us two really terrific gifts. One was love of family and two was raising us in environment and they themselves being colorblind, uh, religious blind. I have, you know, five brothers and three sisters and <laughs> trust me, there was no difference between who, who did the tour, did the chores. And then, you know, when you grew up in a housing project, you know, people will tell me, uh, you know, I remember I was at a uh, Robin Hood um, uh, get together and uh, someone said to me, you know, I saw the Diamond Street housing projects up, but we're collecting money for them. They said, can you imagine growing up in that place? I was like, well, actually, yeah, I, I grew up there. I was pretty good. And so, you know, you couldn't buy a vacation for where I grew up, meaning you had people from different, you know, um, I lived on uh, the ninth floor of a 14 uh, floor apartment building, which was great, by the way, at Halloween. But anyways, that aside, uh, you know, there were people from four different countries, you know, Cuba, probably even more, Italy, uh, we, we had, you know, down the hall, the, 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 the Laskies were, you know, people who were in a concentration camp, we had people from, um, Puerto Rico, uh, Estonia. So you had all these people and, and, you know, you just didn't think about color or anything. And everybody kind of helped each other out. So what it gave me was an open-mindedness and a blindness towards anything other than diversity of thought. Mm-hmm. And when you have that kind of blindness, it's a great gift because, you know, you, you just, you're just listening to people for what they have to contribute. And, and, and I think, you know, I didn't get to where I am in life because of me. I got to where I am in life by getting other people who had different ways of thinking, you know, together and listening to them and really promoting them. And so that was a great gift my, my parents gave to us as kids and the neighborhood I grew up in. So, you know, I could go to Greece, I could go to Africa, but where could I go and have all of that in one place right. with different foods, different languages, different religions? I mean, it was beautiful. Now, there are other people who would see it very differently to me. Mm. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I loved it. And I think that teaches you to work hard. Um, you know, it's about hard work, not about who or, you know, who you are. And, you know, treat other people respectfully and how you'd want to be treated. And I know that sounds trite, but that that's what I learned from my parents. And as I, you know, I'm 62, 63 years old now, actually. And um, those lessons were lessons that I don't really need to know much more because everything else in life, you, you know, anything that's technical, there's always someone that knows more. So you just have to talk to them. All right. So, all right. So that, that that is, first of all, phenomenal experience and learnings from the first 26 years and, and, and particularly the earlier ones. Think about the next 26 years. I mean, all of the successes you've had, Bridgewater, Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, and so on. If you think about the aggregate of your professional experience, what what do you think was some of the most instructive experiences that you had, um, and and what might you wish you knew about the investment and financial service industry before you reached the top of it? Yeah, um, well, some of some of the aha moments for me in my career, Mo, were uh, I remember when I became controller at Morgan Stanley. And I really didn't think I should have the job. I, I, I grew up in the fixed income piece of Morgan Stanley. And so I was like, gosh, I don't really know equities as well, et cetera. Uh, 
I didn't understand that the reason I was picked for the job was because how I was managing people, not necessarily what I knew technically. So I learned yeah. that. But anyways, the first six months I'm, you know, working, you know, a hundred and something hours a week trying to get everything done. And after six months, my family said, listen, you have a choice. It's us or Morgan Stanley. And I yeah. thought, well, I don't want to pick either one of those choices. <laughs> so yeah. I better figure out a way to get my hours at Morgan Stanley down. And I just, realized I don't need to know everything. And I just started asking other people for help that, that I thought could help me on my journey. And it was like this huge box of rocks was lifted off my back. And it always astounds me how there are people in a room, even at my age today, that feel the need to be the smartest person in the room. And you right. never are. There's always someone that knows something more about something. So that was a, was a great, um, that, that was a great learning experience for me. And then the second big aha moment for me was I worked on the swap desk and, um, uh, you know, I'd say at the time, probably 30% of my staff was women, maybe 40%. And, you know, three of them went on maternity at the same time. So I let them all work from home and I get a phone call from HR. I don't know how much later. And they say, listen, Eileen, you know, um, people working from home is against uh, our firm's policy. And I was like, wow, I didn't even know we had a policy on that, but we better change it because the work's not getting done otherwise. And so then I was asked to talk to certain people on the management committee, and I was asked to go away and put together the, the business case for diversity. And honestly, Mo, I thought it was a joke. So I was like, okay, well, why don't you tell me the business case for homogeneity, expecting you know, an up, a, 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 you know, roarish laughter. And I look around the room and the joke was on me. Nobody was laughing. They were dead serious. Uh, so uh, it, it was surprising to me that because be, that diversity would require a business case, it like never dawned on me. And so it was a learning experience for me as I became more senior that there were people who made distinctions, a lot of it unconscious, but some of it conscious on the basis of what people look like, what religion they might be, uh, you know. Uh, what color they might be, what gender they might be. And the rationale for it was to me illogical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that, you know, that there was that big distinction was another big haha moment for me. And then I learned that I could really continue to, to, to use that as an opportunity to get more and more creative ideas in terms of what I was doing in terms of what do I wish I knew, um, as I, I went through my career, I think that there were times in my career when I put work first and I probably shouldn't have, and I sweated over things that, and worried about things that I can't even remember now. And so I think that, you know, having the common sense to, having someone to say, hey, listen, this is not the end of the world, whatever, you know, they say to, to the man or woman with a toothache, you know, the world's a tooth, hmm. uh, you know, having the perspective to put in perspective, you know, the things that I used to worry about and the things I used to emphasize, having a little bit more wisdom earlier on or getting that from someone else probably would have been helpful. But other right. than that, honestly, to God, I feel so fortunate. I feel like God has been so good to me. Um, and did I make mistakes in my career? If you have another couple of days, I could go through them with you. But uh, I feel pretty lucky where I am and, and I feel very blessed. Yeah, no, I, first of all, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we don't have a couple of days, but I'd love to know if you think about those mistakes, the, the most um, instructive ones or the most enlightening ones, 
I mean, obviously, there's no shortage of extraordinary achievements that make up who you are, but they didn't get there. You know, you didn't get to all those achievements without breaking an egg or two along the way. What were the most um, enlightening and valuable mistakes that you could? I think one of the biggest mistakes I made early on was thinking that just because someone was senior to me, they knew thing, they knew more than me or knew things better or knew how we should approach things. Right. And it, it would have saved me a lot of time to have had more confidence or insight to understand that, you know, people, you know, feel vulnerable to say they don't know what they're talking about. And I can think of several situations um, in that probably the, the most, um, the one that I, well, probably not. I don't think that was really a mistake. Mistake's a big word. Um, but I think the biggest mistakes I've made is really relying on people because of their title or because of where they might've been in a particular position. And uh, mm-hmm. that, that cost rank, rank capital uh, charges to certain firms. So we work through it again, that caused a delay in getting certain uh, employee policies put through work from home is a good example. You know, you want to do work from home and someone more senior says, well, it's a bad idea. Let me tell you why. And you kind of think, well, they must know what they're talking about. And they really don't. So, um, <laughs> well, I shouldn't say it that way, but you, you know what I mean? It's like understanding that, that, that there are people in life that don't feel comfortable saying they don't know what, don't know the answer to a particular question and knowing who to ask and, you know, um, not being a wise guy about it. I remember, remember one mistake I think I made was, um, Many, but but one that sticks out in my mind, and I don't know why I was on it. We used, years and years ago, they used to have security counts. So there'd be these big fat packs of, you know, IBM securities. You had to count them and you know tick off on this computer paper. There were X number of them, and the guy who was running the security account, I was the only woman. I had this beautiful white suit that I bought out at the time, and went down into the basement of of uh, <clears throat> 120 Broadway. It was dusty. It was ridiculous. This guy's like, you know, I can't believe we have a woman there. He made a lot of women jokes. And and I looked at him and I knew that he was uh, not going to like what I said. And I said, you know, I really think you'd look much better in this skirt than I do. I bet you'd even like to wear it. And, you know, everyone laughed at him. And it sounds like a silly thing. And I felt so terrible that I made him feel so bad. I became him. Yeah. And so, you know, you don't, you know, uh, to me, um, I want to be who I am. I don't need to be somebody else. If someone else is that way, like God, God bless and let them be. I don't need to. So for some reason, that kind of stuff sticks in my head right. as a big mistake. Uh, but, you know, am I going to tell you that, you know, um, you know, I blew something up or something? No. Um, you know, I'm not a scientist. I, I, you know, didn't kill anybody. I'm not a doctor or nurse. But, you know, I've made mistakes on, like I said, listening to people that I probably shouldn't have listened to and I should have researched more is what they're, the information they're giving me really reliable. And like I said, that, that manifested itself in so many different ways in terms of time delays to get to better outcomes. I don't yeah. know if that's, I'm sorry, I don't have a great story for you. Yeah, this is great, uh, it's great. I, I wanna, I'm gonna come back to the diversity topic in, in, a, in a few minutes. Sure, take the time. Before we get there, what I'd, I wanna, you know, over the course of your career, you've had this, front row seat to many of the evolutions in the financial services world. Um, what do you think have been some of the biggest changes from your point of view? Um, and then I'm going to follow that up with. Sure. I, I think that, that, you know, globalization has been a huge change 
from from 1980 to today. Um, you know, um, two. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this. Most of what I'm saying, I think, has all been enabled by technology. I think globalization has been enabled by enabled by technology. Transparency has been huge on information and the speed of it. Um, customer and employee expectations have changed dramatically. Uh, and you know, we could go through the details of that in terms of fee structures, what clients expect, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, I think the other big change has been what I'll call a lack of connectedness or con contactlessness. And what I mean by that, you know, you used to go into a bank to, you know, take money out. You used to pay your bills in a certain way. And now everything is done without, um, you know, without really being in contact with other people, you can really do a lot with that. So, so I think the big changes have been en enabled by technology. They've been around employee and customer expectations. Um, they've been around the, the level of contact that people have with each other. And there's been a huge change in transparency, which I think has fueled, you know, a lot of the focus and, and margin compression that we've seen and a lot of speed up of the, of the um, transaction cycle. And then even things like, you know, algorithmic trading and so on and so forth, you know, that, that has evolved dramatically over time. But when you step back and look at all of that, a lot of what used to be, um, you know, pretty good margin business has pretty much become commoditized. Mm -hmm. And so I think the question for the future is, you know, particularly with costs going down and so on and so forth, what, how, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you remain relevant and what is your competitive advantage, I think is more challenging today than it than it was say 30 years ago well i mean that's that's a great point and just as a clarifying i mean you sit on the board of hsbc and uh you've kind of led banks i mean we've seen a effectively a, a majorly deflationary environment how are how are the the big financial institutions thinking about maintaining those profit margins uh on a go forward basis at anything near the scale that that they've had until now well, well, the profit margins have come down over the last 30 years, right? In so, so many different places. I think continuing to be focused on the client, I think uh, digitization in terms of not just digital assets in terms of crypto, et cetera, but really digitizing the, um, the legacy assets is, is, is in terms of driving down costs. I also think in terms of uh, evaluating risk more multidimensionally, and then lastly, I think the winners are going to be the places that really provide great career paths for people. I don't think that's really changed much in terms of that will still be a factor. But um, I think, you know, banks are reinventing themselves. I mean, if you look at the work, Goldman, how, how Goldman's reinvented itself more recently in terms of digitization and, you know, how they, how they focus on their clients. But at the end of the day, you're still going to need somebody to lend money, right? So mm -hmm. I think lending is still there in a pretty big way. In terms of um, of, of retail uh, credit cards and all that kind of stuff, the consumer side of it, I think that will continue to become digitized. And I think that you know, the what I think that technology will create more jobs, but I think that um, you know we'll have to really retool and reskill people to to take up what those new jobs are versus what's there today. And I think the financial institutions are going to have to really um, be part of that change to stay relevant and to stay competitive. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, again, I'm going to. But, but what, do you, what do you think? 
<laughs> you know, uh, nobody's on here to hear what I have to say. So I, uh, <laughs> but, but I do, you know, just to, to, uh, to answer your question, I, I do think that every financial institution has to figure out where value is going to be created uh, in a world that's, that's uh, you know, um, has been progressively deflationary. And um, anybody that thinks that they're entitled to charge or, you know, to receive the kind of compensation that they've received is, um, you know, could be that turkey that's sort of, um, you know, we'll see an ex uh, that, that day in Thanksgiving and it unexpectedly uh, comes through. So I think that there's, um, there, there are certain challenges having the industry turn as quickly as I think it will need to. I mean, we've seen with COVID, you know, how much innovation has been pulled forward. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that also. You know, all of the changes that COVID brought forward, what are some of the lasting impacts that you see? I think, I think the biggest lasting impact, which is probably obvious, is there were a lot of, you know, certainly not um, consulting firms or accounting firms, but a lot of firms really resisted this, you know, allowing people to work from home and the mobility of the workforce. And I think companies who, who, you know, companies were forced to do that, some rather quickly. And I don't think we're going back to the day where, you know, everybody sat in the office together. I used to be a big speaker and promoter, Mo, of people working from home, you know, 60, 70 percent of the time. I'm not a promoter of 100 percent of the time. And, 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 and the reason I'm not is I think that you still need to have training and development, some of which, you know, takes place not just on Zoom, but in person. Uh, and I think community and, and, and social ways that we are at work with each other are an important part of an entity's fabric. So I think that, you know, the days of, of people arguing about whether you work from home or not, those days are over. I think we have a very mobile workforce. Uh, and, and, and we will continue to have a mobile workforce. I think how we train and develop people will, will, will you know, look at a, a lot of our kids haven't been able to go back to school, uh, you know, and we've been on the, 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 the Zoom calls or whatever, whatever the schools use to, to get the kids. And so I think the whole way we educate and, and, and teach people uh, will have changes. Um, and I think that, you know, as you know, AI, I mean, this isn't about COVID. I, I think it's all been moved forward. I agree with you. Um, but the, the changes have already been enacted. I mean, we're, we're going down the path of AI. We're going down the path of robotics. We're going down the path of, um, you know, digital assets. We're, we're going down the path of things being enabled by, um, you know, blockchain technology. And so, I think COVID has accelerated some of that. Like we look at where was Zoom, you know, two years ago? No, nowhere, right? Um, but uh, I think, and I think we'll still evaluate and still. I think things are still in process as to how do industries reinvent themselves? How does the how does the uh, conferencing industry, people that make money you know, doing conferencing, you know, that's going to change dramatically? So there's so many industries that are changing, and uh, I think they were already. And COVID right. just accelerated it, as you said. Well, so amidst those changes, you know, and, and amidst all those things that you mentioned, you know, what excites you most over the, about the future? In other words, when you look over the horizon, here's the things that I'm most excited about. Here's the things that I'm most scared of. What come to mind? Sure. Um, what I'm most excited about is uh, basically the possibilities that technology provides to 
reduce inequality and to expand education, uh, you know, in, in a very pervasive way. Well, I'm equally most frightened by that. And what I mean by that is I think technology, you know, I, I was reading something, 27% of, the, there'll be 27% new jobs in 2022 that people aren't prepared for. So how do we go from a education system that's a four-year college and so on and so forth, or companies educating people? How do we retool and reskill people for the new economy? For the, for the fourth industrial re revolution. I think we have 20th century ways of developing and training people and educating them. And we need to really change that in the 21st century. Why does it frighten me? Because if we don't do that, I think we're gonna continue to have a, a gap in, 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 in equality, uh, particularly economically, which, which will be driven by in part education. And uh, I think we'll, we'll have a lot of unemployment, which, you know, if you've been unemployed for a long time, it creates a hopelessness that becomes part of your psyche for your entire life. So I, I'm, I'm most frightened about those. Th I'm most frightened by it, but I also think that it prov that there's also a tremendous opportunity here to avoid all of that <clears throat> and to really expand um, how we look at education. Uh, and I think it has to be a partnership between both private and public, government and business to figure out how to do this. And, um, you know, I think it's gonna be a, a, a whole networking and ecosystem of how we, we approach that. Well, so so what, so if, if this displacement that, that you're describing, which is the rate of change technologically is faster, occurring faster than the current retooling of the workforce, right? Um, and that will lead to potentially mass unemployment um, obviously due to automation. Now, over time, that will be, that gap will hopefully be filled. But in the meantime, what does that mean for markets? What does that mean for the economy broadly? What does that mean for business owners and capital allocators? Like, what are the, the ramifications of that? Well, I think it creates opportunities in terms of there'll be disruptors in the education space that'll be part of businesses. So I think there's opportunities for that. If there's big un unemployment and continued taxation on corporations, I, I, I think that that is something that's a, a, a big, um, you know, a big weight for the economy to carry. I mean, um, if you step back, if you just step back for a second, I don't believe we should wait for, for us to, I mean, these numbers are staggering. I mean, McKinsey, I think said something like 375 million people by 3030 will be out of the workforce, 54 million of them in, in, in my country, in the United States. 54 million people of the working class people is a lot of people. You're starting to approach rates that are similar to the depression. Now, I'm not saying that there won't be new jobs. I'm just saying what you just said, the rate at which they, the rate at which you will need to be educated to fill those jobs is, is, is pretty staggering. So I think it, you know, people know what it means for the economy when there's high levels of unemployment and what it means for the markets. And so, um, I think that, you know, I'm not here to give a lesson on that, but I think that's pretty self-evident. So just like with the pandemic, we didn't know the pandemic was coming. You've got a bunch of people from many different disciplines, very smart people to look at this problem and figure out how do we, how do we solve this problem? Now, there are some things people did that weren't great, and you know, some things that were. And I think this education issue with the retooling and reskilling is, is, is the next pandemic, the unskilled worker. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. 
um, yeah, and listen, I think this all comes to a head as some hearing you talk uh, in terms of talent and talent development. And, you know, and maybe I could actually tie two topics together because you were talking about diversity and inclusion. And I'd, I'd like to really come back and, and, and hear what you've seen over your career. You've always been a, a, a really uh, vocal proponent of diversity and inclusion throughout your career, partly because of your, perhaps because of your background. Um, but, um, you know, one of the questions that I had was, um, let's say everybody was actually 100% committed to diversity and inclusion. You know, we're seeing a diminishing talent pool because people are not being retooled. So is the talent pool even there? And let's look if everybody was committed to it. Like, what are the things oh, that we could do to move? Interesting. The, the way uh, the way I want to just rephrase the way you asked your question. The Please. question, the way you're phrasing it sounds to me like if we don't retool and reeducate, then we won't be able to have diversity and inclusion. I'm not saying you're saying that, but here's and I just want to hit that for a second and then come sure. back to retooling. When we graduate, uh, let's just use gender as an example. We graduate, I think it's around the globe and in most of our countries, 52% of the graduates are women. So they're qualified, right? Right Now, people will say, well, they're not in the, in the areas that are growing. Some of that's true, like the STEM, STEM areas, the science, engineering, mathematics, et cetera. So, so, so we need more to do there to, to get those qualifications. But I don't buy the uh, notion that, you know, uh, this is just a skill set issue for uh, people who are diverse, because we all start out out of college and out of the MBA programs kind of on a similar footing. So it's really what happens beyond that. Companies mm -hmm. have focused dramatically on diversity. And I think the big problem, and I've been talking about this for 20 years, is they don't focus on inclusion. So we focus on, hey, I got 10% of those and 20% of these and now I have them in my company and God bless and go, go, go figure it out. You have to work on how, how do you include people? Right. The retooling piece, I think, is more broad-based than, than diversity and inclusion. I think it's beyond that. Uh, when you look at the numbers, I, I think it's, you know, our entire swaths of the population. And so that, I think, is a bigger issue and um, is, is kind of over, oh, I, would, I would put, diversity and inclusion as a, as a pillar of that, but I think it's a bigger issue than diversity and inclusion. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I conflated two things that shouldn't have been conflated. And really the question was, you know, how do we develop talent in two different areas? Number one is where it needs to be retooled. And, and number two, how do we make sure that that talent is developed with a focus on diversity and inclusion? So, but they shouldn't, uh, the two are, are shouldn't have been connected quite the way I had intended. No, no, it's okay. I just wanted to. I, I don't mean to be overly sensitive. No, no, I just no, think. No. I, I think our big issue is how we have jobs that are going to be there in the future. Are we spending enough time imagining what they are, and are we spending enough time thinking about how do we train and develop people for those opportunities, right. and how do we do it in a way that's sensible? So. You know, companies spend ton save tons of money laying people off because through automation, and then they have to rehire other people. Why don't we have something like I don't know a, a tax credit for companies that um, you know retool and reskill people, or mm -hmm. or regulatory capital benefit? And why don't we you know hit companies for half of their savings? I'm making this all this up. I don't have the solution. I wish I did, but what I what I do think is if we all recognize we have a problem and start thinking about how we solve it versus 
you know, honestly, Mo, I've talked to people who are like, we don't have a problem with unemployment. We're going to have plenty of jobs. Yeah, we're going to have plenty of jobs. I agree. But are, are we going to have the people retooled and reskilled to take those jobs? Right. And if we're not, you know, and you, you believe if, if you only believed half of the numbers that McKinsey, BCG, Deloitte, uh, Ernst & Young, if you only believed half of the numbers that are out there, you'd have to agree we got a big problem that's coming ahead of us. And why right. wait till it happens? And, and just, yeah, I fully agree. In terms of the, the impact that you've seen on companies who've adopted, you know, meaningful diversity inclusion metric measures and those that haven't, you know, is there a way that either allocators of capital or entrepreneurs can measure the tangible benefit could actually point to it and say, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think that allocators of capital have a tremendous power in terms of, you know, helping companies think through what makes them most profitable. Um, there's been study after study, I can send them to you, that diversity results in higher levels of profitability, EBITDA, et cetera. Now, what hasn't been done is why is that? What is it about diversity? Or what is it about anybody that causes that? And there hasn't been a lot of studies on that. Is it people who are more flexible? Is it people who are more risk-taking? What, what is it? But without a doubt, the studies over the last 20 years would point to by, you know, people a lot smarter than me at a lot of these consulting firms that without a doubt, diversity, um, you know, improves profitability. Uh, and so if that's true, and I'm happy to get the studies, like I said, if that's true, then you would think that people would want uh, there to be more focus on that to get more profitable returns. The reality is that uh, the transparency in that, right? I just said, people have to do all these studies. If you wanted to look at the uh, overall risk of a particular company, their market or credit risk, you could pull out their report and see what that is. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to see how a company manages and develops its people, there aren't standards and transparency around talent development. There aren't standards around diversity and inclusion. There aren't standards around a lot of things in ESG that are, you know, clearly going to help companies be more profitable over the long haul, the way there are um, disclosures in the financial statement. So I think getting greater levels of disclosure, which 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 I think would be the first step, you know, because if it's if it's measured, it'll be managed would be a great first step. And I think that um, the owners of capital that allocate capital have a huge say in the marketplace as to what is valued. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier, and you were talking about the uh, introduction of various technologies. You yourself have been an investor and an advisor to various startup ventures in the realm of you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning and so on and so forth. Could you maybe give us some examples how you see AI and machine learning impacting both investors and consumers of financial services, perhaps at some of the companies you're involved with or anything else? Like, what, what do you see as some of the big shifts? I, I think a lot of the I, I think a lot of the transaction type work that's done today lends itself dramatically to to automation, which hasn't fully been done yet. And point two on the AI side, I mean. Basically, you have people using their judgment to look at patterns that if you alternatively, particularly in the risk space, had uh, machines looking at those patterns, 
you would you would have more reliable pattern recognition. You'd probably have the flags done sooner, and you'd displace people out of those jobs. I, I would go even far as to say, you know, a lot of the work that's done in credit um, and and so on and so forth, much the way you've seen uh, equities, you know, really become dramatically automated. Now, how do you apply? Um, artificial intelligence to that, that, um, you know, people are doing today, uh, you know, I, I think is, is, is a tremendous opportunity and is already starting to take place in, in many places. And are you seeing that again, because you were at the, in the heart and soul of the banks, like, are you seeing that actually being, um, in, in, um... I, I think what you're seeing right now is you're seeing a continuation of the migration to the cloud where a lot of people have their focus on. And as they are migrating to the cloud and getting more comfortable with that, they're, they're starting to turn their attention to more and more opportunities in analytics and, and, and so on and so forth to a, to a greater degree mm-hmm. than they have before. Right. Um, but I don't think, I don't think, I think we're at the, 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 honestly, I think we're at the more the beginning than the end of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you touched earlier on you know digital assets, and again you know I think one of the companies you work with is a company called Luca I believe, and you know whether you put on your HSBC cap or your Finner cap, how, how do you see digital assets permeating the financial service industry? Uh, again, I think we're at the beginning, but I think digital assets um, are are here to stay. I think they're a way to exchange value. Um, you know, it had the, the the technology itself has issues with it. But just like, you know, it's like when we started with the internet, people were only comfortable doing an intranet because they somehow felt safer. Uh, I think, you know, digital currencies four years ago, people, you know, weren't kind of frightened by them. I think people are becoming more and more comfortable with digital assets. They're becoming more and more comfortable with the efficiencies that are provided by them. But they also are concerned about how do you use it in scale and size? What are some of the security issues with it? And I think as the technology evolves, those issues will will, will find resolution. Mm-hmm. But I, I think digital assets are here to stay, and the efficiency of them, I don't think, is 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 really arguable. And you mentioned you said a word in terms of value. There's clear value to them. You know, one of the I don't remember, but one of the previous speakers that we had, we were talking a little bit about you know, non-fungible tokens and NFTs and some of the others, how value is established in digital assets? Like there's one thing is take an asset and digitize it. And the other is a purely digital asset, which um, is kind of hard to to wrap your heads or hands around. How do you view that evolution? Um, I, I- you know, I think on the first one you said, um, I, I think that it's clear that you could exchange, be it artwork or whatever it is you want to exchange, digitally, right? And we're migrating from a physical world to a digital world in that that respect. Where those two overlap, in, in other words, if I bought a digital painting, would I be happy with just the digital record of that and not the physical painting? Probably not. I wouldn't be. Right. Maybe the world will evolve to that. In terms of the actual value of a of a of a currency or so on and so forth, with from a from a digital perspective, that's still evolving, and there's lots of questions around that, as you well know. So I'm not going to sit here and purport to to have the the answer on that, but there's certainly a lot of value ascribed to it, right? And so, right. Um, you know, 
I, I, I see more value in the digitization right now, and I see more value in the ability to exchange assets more more rapidly. And then I see that crypto is nothing more as an exchange, you know, like a, a dollar or some other currency to be able to do that. Right. And so, the value yeah, technically have- goes through supply and demand, and and but that's even that's being turned on its side there. Sure. 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 So, I mean, even in the short conversation, we've touched on a lot of uh, things that you're involved with, a lot of organizations, a lot of projects. You know, you said a bunch of boards, advising startups, serving as chair of a major uh, regulatory authority. You know, how do you pick and choose the, the things that you get involved with? And, and maybe you could also talk a little bit about the traits of the people that you look to work with and those that you wouldn't. Um, well, first of all, um, I like to continuously learn and stay relevant. So I think technology is here to stay. I think if I don't continue to learn about technology and its applications and what it enables, <coughs> I could see myself becoming less relevant. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a programmer. Uh, but what the capabilities of these technologies are, are mind-blowing. And so I really enjoy learning about that. And I think it's, it, I, I, I think most, I guess the new term that's coined is the fourth fourth revolution, right? Industrial revolution, fourth, fourth revolution. Um, and so I really enjoy learning in that. And then how can I apply it? But before that, um, I've spent a lot of my career working with some really great people. And I've worked with some people I would prefer not to work with. Uh, and so now I'm at a point in my life where I get to choose who I work with. And um, that's really important to me. I, you know, I, I, I think as you get older, you realize time is really a very precious uh, commodity. And so who you spend time with, I think for me, has become an incredibly important uh, part of my life. And I want to spend time with people who are curious, who have, uh, who have integrity, and if possible, low ego, but not a requirement, and who are open-minded. That to me is like so joyous. It's like joyful to spend my time with people like that. And what I also want to do is make sure that, you know, like I said earlier in this conversation, God's been very good to me. And so I want to make sure that, you know, I'm having impact to the best of my ability in terms of what I'm doing. I'm still trying to figure out, I'm probably more of a generalist than I am someone on a particular. And so if you looked at what I'm doing right now, you'd probably say, oh my God, like it just sounds like a hodgepodge of like, what are you doing? And actually they all connect between two vectors. One is technology and one is financial services. So they all connect through that. But the bigger connection for me is is working with great people who want to make changes for the better and who are just people who are good people that I like to spend time with. Uh, And like I said, hopefully having impact. So there's lots of places we could all have impact, but who you have impact with may not matter to you. It matters to me now. And those are the cap- those are the qualities of the people that, that that I look for. Right. And 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 anything still sits on your bucket list in terms of what you still hope to achieve? You know, I I have to tell you the truth. I never set out with I want to achieve X, Y, and Z. I wish I I never did. I never said you know in three years I'll be here or in four years I'll be there. So I, I'm kind of more uh, where things take me. Mm-hmm. And as long as I'm having impact and I'm enjoying who I'm spending time with, that would be good enough for me. Right. And, and again, it seems like, you know, 
he placed this great emphasis on um, on quality people, on people that are curious and and thoughtful and have something to teach you. So when you think about some of your own role models and personal inspirations, be curious as to who those people are and what might have been the the best pieces of advice or wisdom that uh, anyone has imparted on you that stands out. Um, oh. I'm going to say something that 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 I really sincerely mean, and it took me time to understand this. The person I've learned the most from in my life, even through my business career, is my mother. Hmm. I remember, um, you know, after 9/11, which was a disastrous time for everybody, uh, and I was down in the city for three days straight, uh, you know, helping understand what was going on with the financial systems. And I was at Morgan Stanley, and we had tons of people down at the World Trade Center, which was, which was awful. And, um, you know, there was a certain way people reacted during that process that I didn't feel was consistent with my values. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of the coin, to be honest with you, I was like, geez, I've been at Morgan Stanley for almost 20 years. Like, I don't, I don't even know if, I don't know if I'm good enough to work anywhere else. Mm-hmm. But I, and so I, I was going through this and torturing myself for months. And, and I talked to my mother and she said, what, what, I don't know what you do for a living. I really don't. But what I do know is one thing. If you're not true to who you are and you're not true to your values, you're going to be a miserable person. So whatever it is you're frightened of, forget it, because that's the most frightening thing for you. And I was like, Jesus, she's right. You know, I, I should. It was time for me to leave. And um, but there were very simple things, you know, or. Um, <laughs> my mother was incredibly generous and had very little, but I won't go into those stories. So so. In my, throughout my life, she really impacted me tremendously. And she, believe me, she didn't have it easy. From a professional perspective, I'd say the person who uh, was was uh, the most helpful to me was a guy by the name of John Mack. Not by, John Mack is, is, is around and well. And uh, John Mack was someone who was incredibly tough, uh, but fair. And he really didn't care if you were a woman. He didn't care if, you know, whatever you were, as long as you got the job done and you did it well. And he was a terrific sponsor of mine for many, many years and ultimately a mentor. And so he was someone who, you know, you know, grew up in in North Carolina, son of a a shopkeeper, Um, you know, they were from, his parents were from Lebanon, they were Catholics down in in North Carolina. And so he knew what it was like, I think, to be on the outside. And Mm -hmm. he made sure he created environments for everyone to be on the inside, so long as they did a good job. And, And he was very courageous and is very courageous. And so he didn't have to do that. He could have, he could have picked people, it would have been easier for him to pick. But he really valued people, he valued teamwork, and he went out of his way to be a champion for diversity and inclusion before anyone even used those words. Right. And so I feel very fortunate to have, have worked for him. He's still a good friend. And um, yeah, I would say those two people and his, his honesty and integrity, I would say uh, second to none. And um, two quick questions. Sorry, I didn't probably told you more than you wanted to hear. No, 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 it's great. Perfect. I uh, two quick questions just before we uh, wrap up. I firstly, I I, um, I asked you about some of your role models, inspirations, best piece of advice. Were, were there any um, were there any books or writings that you credit with materially having shifted or, or shifted or transformed your yeah, world? Yeah, th- th- there's a book by uh, Cahill Gabran 
called The Prophet, which I'm sure you've read. And I'm sure many people have read. When I was in eighth grade, my father, you know those little books you get in eighth grade when you graduate and people write those silly things in it? My father wrote me something from Cahill to Brand, which at the time I was like, I don't know why the hell he, he wrote this. Uh, never say I found the truth, but rather a truth. I won't go through the rest of it. And, you know, I've read The Prophet probably eight, nine, ten times, and I always get something out of it. Hmm. Always. And it's it's about, you know, life and, and people. And um, so, yes, I've read many technical books. But um, for me, the prophet has um, has really inspired me to re to really reflect on things in a way that without that, I wonder if I would have. Hmm. And just one last question, and to wrap this up, I mean, we, we spoke a lot about it, your um, your successes in uh, in your career, uh, but you've also done a lot of really interesting things on the philanthropic side of things. How do you decide? what it is that you're going to invest your time and money into from a philanthropic point of view how have you kind of evolved uh some of your giving and your and donating again all of your time resources and energy and creativity too yeah um i um it's a great question and i don't I, you know i'm on the irish art center which i love and honestly i initially went on it because my mother asked me to, but I loved it, you know, to, and, and I'm involved in how do you, how do you, how do you retain the culture and the history and how do you, you know, get, how do you give money to that? Because a lot of it's not retained. Um, and then uh, I'm, I've been involved in um, the Y, the y, YMCA. I've been involved as a board member. I've been involved in um, a number of boards. And what I found for Mimo is I prefer to be more involved than a board member. So for example, I was on the board of Manhattan College and I, I would always go and hang out with the, the student the student body, the student governing body, because I wanted to know what's going on in the place and what can I really change. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I basically spend my time, because um, you could spend your time forever on this, on two, two, two areas. One, education. So for example, uh, the path pathfinders uh, for after school education. I spent time on that. I spent time on the Irish Art Center, and um, you know I give money to things. But for me, it's my time is more valuable, mm -hmm. and um, I'm thinking about what else I'm going to add to that, and 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 I, probably something to do with education or children. Mm -hmm. um, and so I have to figure that out. What I'm also trying to do is is, is spend more time with my family. I have 33 nieces and nephews and, uh, I, you know, I, I can't spend time with all of them. Um, I don't even know if I'd like to, but a bunch <laughs> of them I do. And, um, you know, you only get an opportunity for, for kids to be a certain age once. Right, right. And how many times do we go to work or how many times do we do this next thing versus stopping and spending mm -hmm. time with children? and really helping them through the experiences you may have had. And I know it probably sounds like motherhood and apple pie, but I watch so many times people not spend time with their parents, not spend time with their kids, and yet they're very, very successful. And I say to myself, is that really successful? I'm not so sure. Right, right. No, I think, Eileen, uh, I couldn't agree more with you. And, and in general, this has been fantastic. Um, thank well, you. I'm sorry it wasn't more structured. I know I, I, I didn't prepare for this, and, and I didn't because I just have to say I felt so comfortable with you 
that I was like, we're just going to have a great conversation and I'm not going to go away and prepare for it because in some ways I've been preparing all my life and you've been incredibly fair and gracious. And the reason for which you're doing this, I think is just terrific. And we really appreciate that. So thank you again for joining us, for sharing your incredible insights with us. And, um, it, you know, we know how valuable your time and your wisdom is. And uh, we really hope we can do this again soon. Um, yeah, I'm sorry if I, I don't know. I don't I don't buy that it's all that insightful or, or wisdom. But you know what? I'd leave you with this last thought. There's so many things that are simple sayings that really, if we incorporated them into our lives, everything else works a lot better. Work, family, everything. But anyways, You're 100%, I digress. No, this is that is the essence. That is the essence of it all. And we all we all forget that, right? We put right. the urgent before the important. Absolutely. The fact that so many of us come back, I, you mentioned your mother, you know, was kind of the primary role model and inspiration for you. And how many of us actually come back to that way later in life, after all the allure of people that we worshipped and admired sort of has worn off. We always come back to uh, to our source. And, and you, you know, my, my father was a decorated war hero, which I didn't know till he passed away. He passed away when I was quite young. He had silver stars and bronze stars and purple hearts. And he never talked to us about war. And he went into the war quite early because he was, he was like 17. And he was very upset with what was going on in Europe, uh, in Germany in particular. And he said two things. He said, when people die, and I hope you're never around a lot of people that die, but they say, they ask for two things, God and their mother. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true, but that's what, that's what his wisdom was. Yeah. Uh, So spend enough time on both. Thank you for joining us today. We are grateful to each of you and to each of the generous sponsors that made today's program a reality. As a reminder, 100% of the proceeds from Lunches with Legends supports pediatric mental health, improving the lives of children and families in our communities. If you haven't already, please consider donating and supporting our efforts by visiting luncheswithlegends.com. Finally, to get exclusive access to our family office events and our annual conference, make sure to subscribe to our mailing list on the Prime Quadrant website, which you can access by visiting primequadrant.com.